Well, I'm going to read some of those scriptures I mentioned this morning. Like I, meant, I noted, I'm going to do a, a, a kind of a quick uh, recapitulation of what I talked about this morning and then get into the stuff I didn't get to. So um, if you hadn't heard, I've been asked to speak at a conference on Bitcoin, of all things. So I'll be going down to Miami next month to do that. And when I was asked uh, to speak at the Thank God for Bitcoin conference, which is connected to the big Bitcoin conference, uh, I thought, can I thank God for Bitcoin? It was like my first question I, I you know, asked myself. Is this something that I can actually do? <laughs> I thought about it a minute, and I said, yeah, I can. So at least I can do this honestly. Now, I'm, I'm not like the world's authority on Bitcoin. Uh, if you were to quiz me about a number of the technical matters related to it, you'd be disappointed in my response. So what do I bring to the, to the, to the matter that's perhaps worth uh, hearing and uh, that's where I want to start. And I'll begin with a, with a few of those parables that were mentioned. The first uh, couple are very short. They're found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, beginning at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, uh, another parable. This one's a little longer. This is the parable of the dishonest manager. Perhaps my favorite parable in the Bible, uh, and the most perplexing to most people. I guess that's maybe the reason I like it so much, is that It uh, seems so counterintuitive. He said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in an account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since uh, my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay? That usually makes that people look at the reader quizzically. We're going to move on, though, <laughs> to another uh, couple of uh, scriptures. Uh, the first is found in uh, Colossians chapter 3, and then the next will be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. So let me get my finger there for, for that one. Um, so here, uh, the Apostle Paul you know, is summing up a number of things that need to be put to death. So he says, uh, beginning in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's interesting. He makes that connection. He doesn't 
doesn't uh, elaborate on why the other things that he notes that need to be put to death are uh, what they are. But when he gets to covetousness, he explains. He says, which is idolatry. That's something to reflect on. Um, and then in uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, here the apostle is talking to his protege Timothy and telling him some things that he needs to know about uh, uh, some of the things he's going to be dealing with as a teacher. He says, teach and urge these things. This, be, this is beginning in uh, verse 2. If anyone teaches different doctrine and does, that does not agree with sound words, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He, is an unhe- he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining, this is the, this is the point, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. And then he goes on to elaborate what are the necessary things, and they're the things you'd expect. So, uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, these are important things to keep in mind, because we're going to talk about wealth, we're going to talk about money, and uh, its proper use. But, uh, with uh, these warnings in mind, uh, because we're dealing with something that's very potent, that has a real drawing power, uh, that has a way of bringing out the worst in us. Uh, there are things that we would never suspect that we were capable of, but when money is introduced in great heaping mounts, people uh, do all sorts of things that they couldn't have imagined doing. You know, there are, you, you've probably heard all the stories about the guys who hit the lottery. You know, they were just doing great until they, they became multimillionaires and then ruined their lives. All the people they thought were their friends, they, they discovered were not really their friends. <laughs> and they, you know, end up saying something that it's hard for us who've never hit the lottery to imagine. I wish it never had happened. Stories like that get told again and again because uh, of the power, the spiritual power of wealth. Um, now, this particular conversation tonight is within the framework of a, of a situation we find ourselves in our world that's a bit... I think unexpected as well. Um, I think a number of us have kind of uh, grown aware over the past few years, things are getting kind of weird in our society. People are calling things that are just obviously evil good and things that are obviously good evil, and people are losing livelihoods and, uh, and in fact, even being punished and fined for basically just saying things that are true and would have been acknowledged as true by any common sense person up, you know, to 10 years ago or so. So the, the conditions that we find ourselves in have got people thinking about, okay, how do, I, how do I prepare to kind of live in a situation or to sort of chart my path, my course, in a, in a world where who knows who might turn on me or what could happen at work? Um, and that's why I suggested watching Casablanca. How many folks watch Casablanca this afternoon? Hey, look at that. We watched Casablanca at our house. I just wanted to refresh my memory. But do you remember how the story goes? It's Morocco. We're in Morocco. It's, it's World War II, 1941 or 42, I think, is when the story... That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's right sort of as it's all unfolding. Um, but there they are in Morocco. And what do you have? You have refugees from all over the world, people on the run. 
And uh, they're all at Rick's Americano or American. I think it's what it's titled, Rick's American, which is like a, a saloon, a gambling house, a casino kind of thing. And Humphrey Bogart is Rick, right? And uh, what you see uh, in the opening scenes, as they give you a sense of what that place is like, is desperate people. Desperate people willing to sell anything for freedom. They're all fleeing the Nazis. So uh, you're in a particular part of France, which is not occupied. Uh, So there's a little more uh, freedom on the part of the French officials. But uh, you can also see by their interactions with the Nazis that they're not really that free. They really have uh, a a powerful uh, political force that they have to contend with and comply with. And uh, one of the more interesting characters in the story is, is Louis, who is the, the police uh, commandant. And there's this interesting relationship between him and Rick in the story. They're, they're kind of two sides of the same person, both kind of cynical. Uh, but one still has uh, kind of an idealist heart, and the other is just kind of given up and is just on the make. By the end, Louis has been uh, redeemed. He's, his... his, you know, his uh, Genuine uh, affections and loves and uh, concerns get to come to the surface uh, as he's more or less unwittingly uh, a collaborator in the deliverance of uh, this um, Czech freedom fighter. What was his name? Uh, the Czech freedom fighter. Victor Laszlo. Victor Laszlo. Yeah, Victor Laszlo. Yeah, <laughs> you would remember that. <laughs> Victor Laszlo, who had escaped from two or, two or three concentration camps, was like public enemy number one in the eyes of the Nazis, and they were all out to get them. But what you have is an, a situation in which you have a criminal organization that's taken over the government. That's really what we're talking about, the Nazis. And uh, consequently, you're, you're in a situation where uh, really decent, good-hearted people are having to kind of, kind of make, take advantage of the, the black market. And that's what you have in the course of the story. You have these black market profiteers who are able to uh, sell things that people want in order to escape papers, you know, just different things, make connections and so forth, in order for people to get to Lisbon and get on the, get on the boat to America. And that's the other thing in the story. America represents freedom. It's sort of the, the, uh, the watering hole, the, the casino is named, you know, the American. <laughs> And uh, throughout the story, of course, Rick uh, is this, you know, wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove character, uh, and just intervenes at different points. There's this marvelous point where this uh, Bulgarian couple, uh, the woman comes to him and is begging for help. And, you know, Rick is just like, yeah, well, bad things happen to lots of people. (laughs) He's just got that kind of demeanor. And then she she starts to explain that she can get the papers that will help them to get out of uh, Morocco, uh, or Casablanca, I should say. It's in Morocco. Casablanca is in Morocco. Get out of Casablanca, but she's going to have to do a favor for the police commandant. And it's pretty clear what that favor is as she's describing it. And she's asking Rick, do you think that that's uh, something that I can be forgiven for uh, if I have to do this? And at that moment, you see Rick make up his mind what he's going to do. And he sets up the roulette wheel so that her husband wins all this money. <laughs> and then everybody in the, in the whole 
uh, you know, in, in the casino know what he did for this couple. And they're all, you know, just overjoyed. Because he's basically given them like thousands of dollars so they could pay off the, uh, the, the, the official. But I guess the reason I want to sort of paint that picture is what you have is good folks who can't trust the authorities. Let that sink in. It's really hard for us to, to kind of imagine ourselves in a situation like that. But it's becoming more and more the case that we may actually find ourselves in a situation like that. What do you do when the people in charge can't be trusted to look after your interests? What do you do? Well, here, take this. We just discovered, so some of you know, most of you know, that uh, our oldest son uh, works at Covenant Presbyterian in Nashville where the shootings occurred. So um, that caused us as officers of the church to do a little research. We discovered that if we had someone in our church who defended uh, the lives of the congregants using a gun, our insurance agency would not cover it, would not defend us. Let that sink in. (laughs) We'd be on our own. And there are laws that actually make it very difficult for people to defend themselves in our current situation. So it's, it's possible that we could find ourselves in a situation having done everything right and in a lot of trouble. That's the kind of world that's emerging around us. So in light of all that, what do you do? So... One of the things that you see in Casablanca is people are selling their, their most precious possessions at bargain basement prices in order to get out of town, get out of Casablanca. You know, and they're like, you know, you know, handing over, you know, thousands and thousands of francs and jewels and gold and just anything to get what they know is invaluable. What what uh, they're longing for, which is freedom. So which, which brings me back to um, the subject of the evening, uh, the subject of uh, what constitutes value. So this morning I talked about the study of value. It's, uh, in philosophy, it's referred to as axiology. And uh, ac- it, with regard to that study, philosophers have uh, noted that there are two kinds of things or two ways in which value can be, can be thought about. There are things that have intrinsic value, and then other things that are, have extrinsic value. Things are, that have intrinsic value are things that you uh, desire to possess that you don't use to get other things. In other words, they're things that are valuable in and of themselves. Health. Uh, another thing you could think about would be knowledge or uh, virtue. Or in the case of Casablanca, Freedom, political freedom. That's a, that's a good that you, uh, if you possess it, uh, you don't want to exchange it for something else. It's the end. It's the thing that you've exchanged other things to get. And that's what you see in uh, Rick's uh, casino is people are make, they're exchanging the goods that they have, things that have extrinsic value, to obtain something that has intrinsic value. Um, now, what you have in those parables that I, I uh, read to you about uh, the pearl and the treasure buried in the field, 
in both of those stories, people sell everything they have in order to get the pearl or to get the treasure, right, in those stories. The treasure is the intrinsically valuable thing. What you possess that you give in exchange for it uh, is extrinsically valuable. It's valuable insofar as it helps you to get things that you desire. So uh, I noted this morning that the reason why I, as a pastor, philosopher, theologian kind of guy, actually uh, have, it has, has a, a good reason to speak at a conference like Thank God for Bitcoin is that I represent the most valuable entity of all, God. What uh, preachers should proclaim is that God is supremely valuable and that everything else derives its value from him. With that in mind, everything else is relative. In other words, in some sense, uh, its, its value is determined by its relationship to God. Now, um, we talked about uh, money and what it is and how it works. talked about it being a store of value and a means of exchange. And we talked about uh, a couple of uh, forms that money can take. Uh, we've talk- we talked a little bit about uh, uh, precious metals and then fiat currencies. So precious metals, obviously things like gold, silver, and so forth. And what I noted is that uh, one of the reasons why historically um, people who thought about this uh, considered uh, gold and precious metals, particularly gold, though, intrinsically valuable, is that in some sense they're analogs to the glory of God. So when we think about gold, uh, we can say that gold is beautiful, it's lustrous, it has a kind of... uh, in the, in the light, an effect upon us in the sense that it, it, uh, it uh, uh, draws us in. It fills us with a kind of um, sense of, of radiance and glory uh, that, that we associate with glory. Another thing is that it's weighty. Uh, by the way, the word glory, uh, when we hear the term Shekinah glory, for example, the radiance of God's uh, glory uh, would be something that would be an analog to the lustrous character of gold and how it uh, reflects light. But the weightiness of gold would also uh, be uh, something that corresponds to the glory of God because the Hebrew word uh, kabod or kabod actually means weight or heavy. So there's a sense in which when you think, say, for example, when the glory of God fills the temple uh, on the dedication day when Solomon uh, is dedicating the temple, what happens? Everybody falls to their knees. It's a, it's, there's a sense in which the weight of God's glory presses you to the ground. So there's that. Uh, and then it uh, doesn't decay. You leave silver exposed, it tarnishes. You have to spend a lot of time polishing the silver, right? Uh, I've got silver, I don't let it out. <laughs> I keep it in airtight containers so I don't have to keep polishing it all the time. But that doesn't happen with gold. So those are characteristics of gold that uh, have it, uh, that appear to have an, ana- an analogous or an analogical relationship to God. Uh, now, it is, it's true that it is scarce. It's not uh, something that we see all around us, and that's also an important character, uh, characteristic of gold. Uh, but fiat currency uh, is something that is backed up not by gold, once upon a time, you know, 
our money before President Nixon in 1973 changed the rules, was backed up with gold. Um, now it's just backed up by the promises of the United States government to stand behind it, which means that what stands behind the money that's in our pockets, the currency that's in our banks, is the power of the United States government. So it's power. Now, that also is, is kind of an analogical relationship to God. God is powerful, right? But uh, there's, I think, some important differences between the two I think you can see. On the one hand, gold uh, doesn't rely on the government <laughs> uh, for its value. It's just something that we as human beings acknowledge and universally across cultures all over the world uh, share our regard for it. And consequently, it's kind of apolitical, you could say. Um, and there, that's a problem from, from the government stand, uh, pr uh, perspective. And that's why during the Great Depression, um, our government made rules about the authority of the government to confiscate your gold. I don't know if you realize that, but uh, every uh, licensed dealer in, of precious metals has to report uh, every uh, you know, uh, purchase of precious metals to the government. So the government knows what you got if you've got uh, bullion. Now, if you're talking about numismatics, in other words, collectible coins, that's a different thing. And I'll talk about that a little more in a minute. But that's, that's some things to think about as we think about how um, currency works or what it represents. So we exchange uh, currency for things that we value. And then uh, in some sense, the currency itself is a, stored, a store of value. And how that works is something that uh, a great many people have theorized about but it's almost a kind of mystical thing. Uh, we, we, all, we all know it. We all feel the power of it. Um, but is it merely that it's uh, some kind of arbitrary representation? Or is there some sense uh, through our common life that we recognize that, that uh, money in some way actually does store kind of the creative uh, and... Um, uh, sort of contributions of people through their labors and their ideas, and in some sense is kind of part of a person's life. Um, if you think about it that way, um, stealing is a kind of murder because there's some sense in which your life is bound up in uh, the currency and the possessions that you have. So, any thoughts or questions about any of that? Because I'm about to get into the, to, to the stuff I didn't get into this morning. That's pretty much all recapitulating what I said earlier. Okay, well, let's dive into the next thing. Well, obviously, there are problems. Uh, one of the problems, of course, is greed. Uh, when it comes to wealth, uh, there is the prospect that we may uh, substitute uh, wealth for the one who is truly the object or worthy object of our, our uh, devotion and who is truly valuable, and that's God. So uh, in some sense, wealth can come to represent uh, creation and the powers of creation and human life in a way that draws us away from our, our source, our creator, and the one to whom we should uh, dedicate our lives. But the other, the other problem with this, of course, is theft. And I, know, I already mentioned that. 
you know, don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's warning. Um, but also where thieves can, can steal it. <laughs> so if you store up your treasures uh, where the, those things can't get access or get at them, you're better off. You're more prudent. Um, there are a couple of other things to keep in mind, though, with regard to money, and this is where we get into some of the technical things that do relate to Bitcoin. So inflation. Inflation is something that uh, we've all witnessed, particularly in the last year or so. Um, in certain parts of the world, it's a whole lot worse than it is here. I just saw, uh, I think a couple of days ago, that the inflation rate in Argentina is 102%. So over the course of a year, things are more than doubling in cost. Now, uh, do, 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 do the paychecks go up at the same rate? No. So what you have is a, as, as, as an impoverishment, uh, even uh, you know, um, though people may be getting more money to try to keep up with inflation, but what you, ha- what you find in situations like that is as soon as the money comes, it makes absolutely no sense to save it. What do you do with it? You spend it as quickly as you can uh, because the longer you hold on to it, less valuable it is. Now, inflation can occur in a couple ways. Uh, you know, there's a supply and demand, uh, you know, sort of a dynamic that can lead to uh, an inflation of, uh, you know, prices when it comes to, say, real estate or something uh, like that. So if there's great demand in a particular area and a limited supply, the prices, the, the cost, the asking prices are going to go up. Uh, you can't really uh, expect people to pay for what they can't uh, you know, pay. <laughs> um, so uh, usually that happens uh, in places where there's some economic growth and there are other conditions that are kind of leading to, the, to that uh, limit, sort of uh, constraint on supply. But the other thing is the debasement of the currency. Um, now, currency debasement goes way back. You know, so um, it's not just uh, those of us who live in countries where there are paper currencies that, you know, have this to worry about. This happened in Rome. Uh, they would just debase the currency by actually mixing in other metals uh, into, the, into the coins. And people wouldn't know it that until it was too late. <laughs> so uh, what you have in a situation like that is uh, you have more and more currency, but it's, lost, it's losing value. And that's why things cost more, because the, the, the money that you give in exchange for the goods that you're trying to obtain um, is less valuable than it, than it used to be because there's more of it. It's a kind of, kind of supply and demand problem. Now, now we just have an increase in terms of the money supply. Now, there are winners and losers in an a, a inflationary environment. Can you think about who are the winners and the losers in an inflationary environment? Yeah. Yeah, they're the winners. So who gets the money first? And even before them, the government. <laughs> Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve creates more money. They sell the money to the banks. The money sends, sends it out to uh, you know, debtors, people who are borrowing money. And so that's how the money supply increases. But there are people who are st- sort of benefiting uh, by the new uh, currency that has been created and it's the, it's the early uh, adopters, you could say, or the people who have access to it first. It's people who are further down the line who discover that, hey, I was kind of taken advantage of in this situation.
Can you think of other people who uh, are, uh, let's think about losers, maybe some other people who are losers. Yeah. Yeah, savers are losers. Think about that. So uh, I was with one of my old mentors, um, a guy named Don Fish, real estate kind of mogul in central Connecticut. And my son uh, and I were with Don, and my son was looking at a property that Don was showing us. And my son said, hey, I'm trying to save some money. Uh, I'd like to get a little more money saved before I, I take a step in the, in the direction of getting another house. And Don looked at him and said, don't save. It's dumb. Now, why would Don say that? Because Don became a wealthy man not by saving, but by borrowing. See, this is the logic that starts to kick in in an inflationary environment. Why does it work? To be, why, why do you become wealthy through borrowing in an inflationary environment? I'm not saying this is fair. I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying this is the way it is. <laughs> So the particular property that you may have purchased at, say, $100,000 may inflate to $200,000, but you still only owe $100,000. It's not like your debt is tied to. So uh, the people who issue debt are the losers in that situation, and the borrowers are the winners. That's why people do a lot of leveraging. They leverage, 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 leverage. Now, the trick, of course, is getting out at the right time, (laughs) because leverage works in two directions or two ways. Uh, if you find yourself in a deflationary environment, which can happen, you're in a heap of trouble, <laughs> right? You can lose it all overnight, just boom. That's what happened in uh, the 30s. That's what brought it all down, the Great Depression. Uh, deflationary environment kicked in. People were leveraging money to buy stocks. That's what we saw with the, you know, the, uh, the uh, subprime mortgage crisis, what we discovered, so it wasn't, just the, it wasn't just the fact that there were a bunch of mortgages that were issued to people who couldn't pay them back. That was, that's just the beginning of the story. What happened was, is mortgages were bundled and sold. So those mortgages that were bundled and sold were used as collateral to make even bigger loans. And then those were used as collateral. <laughs> you see where this is going? To make even bigger loans. So the next thing you know, you have this a huge sort of bubble of debt. And all it took was a, a few people who didn't pay their mortgages to burst the bubble. And that's what the subprime mortgage crisis in, ni- in 2008 was all about. So in the world of high finance, it gets pretty weird and freaky, and you get all these sorts of things that can develop. But part of the story is inflation and how inflation comes about. So, you know, if you uh, are, say, on fixed income, um, an inflationary environment is really bad news. Every time you get your Social Security check, it's worth less than it was last month. That kind of thing is where you find yourself. So... It's a kind of robbery, you could say. There's a kind of scam that's going on. Um, and some of the weakest, most vulnerable people in a society are the ones who are taking the financial hit. Does that strike you as problematic? <laughs> it, it should. Um, anyway, so that's, that's kind of the, the background. 
And it seems as though, particularly with the, the approach that certain people at the Federal Reserve take to keep our, our economy solvent, the solution to every problem is what? More currency. The flood, you know, the money supply with more money to kind of keep liquidity. Now, in terms of what, you know, the trade-offs are, I, I'm not an authority. I, I'm not here to say that, you know, those actions weren't maybe prudent in the, in the, in the times that those actions were uh, taken. But the, the larger sort of, I guess, uh, implications of this is uh, there were losers. And that's a concern that should, we should have in, keep in mind. Any thoughts about any of that? Yeah, Christopher. The government holds so much debt. Yeah. They win as the borrower in an inflationary environment. Talk about a deal, man. They lose. They lose (laughs) terribly in a high interest rate environment. So they're between a rock and a hard place as they try to raise interest rates. Yeah. And uh, we talked a little bit uh, this morning about the United States being uh, the world's reserve currency. Um, you know, we issued, you know, we, we borrow from other countries. Uh, we issue, um, you know, treasuries and T-bills and stuff and sell them to uh, keep ourselves solvent as a, you know, a government. And, um, you know, those are all promises. But the interest rates are, in some sense, things that we can play with because we're the world reserve currency. If we weren't the world reserve currency, I think that we wouldn't have such sweet deals. So there are a lot of things that are in play uh, that are very difficult to sort of track and appreciate. But what I'm trying to sort of, uh, sort of paint in terms of a picture for you is uh, we, we could find ourselves in an economic environment where uh, we are having a difficult time trying to, to uh, pursue our own interests in ways that sort of the conventional approach to taking care of our own needs uh, doesn't seem to be working for us, uh, if you get my drift. So uh, with that in mind, one of the things I've been wondering about in light of some of the political developments and so forth is what do you do when the state goes rogue? when the state is the criminal. And that's one of the reasons why I encourage you to watch uh, Casablanca, because what you had in that film is the state is the criminal. You have lots of criminals in the, in the film, but, you got some, but none of them are you know, uh, as powerful as the Nazis. So when you have a, 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 a criminal enterprise which runs the government, what do you do? What do you do with uh, Romans 13, for example, when... Uh, the policies, uh, the laws uh, are actually um, unjust and working against um, Christians. Uh, I noted earlier today that Augustine, the city of God, gets into that. Uh, it reflects quite a bit on the, on the possibility that a, that a government can become a criminal enterprise. One of the things that I've reflected on a lot is the... Uh, a set of, uh, of, of strategies that I learned uh, about that uh, were put into practice by the great houses of Europe. So the aristocracy uh, in various European countries uh, has had to pass through or go through a lot of 
regime change over the last few hundred years. And uh, what did they do to look after their own interests? So if you're you know, like living in France or you're living in uh, Hungary or any part of the world where you know, some violent uh, political events have occurred, what it, what it, you know, what, which, what's the strategy for, for navigating those times or getting out on the other side of those, uh, those, or those periods of history? And there were three things that uh, these researchers discovered were essentially constituted the strategy of these, uh, of these houses, of these aristocratic uh, families. So they invested in these things. One is land, so that was important. And it's good to have land in other places. <laughs> Why? Because you might need to go there to get away from you know, all those people that are trying to kill you back home. So you, know, you, you end up uh, investing in land. Um, obviously, there are problems uh, with regard to land. Uh, I noted this morning that when it comes to land, uh, when you have sovereign territories, uh, your, your ownership is always in some sense qualified by the authorities of the region who have a, a claim on the land that you own. Um, the other two are uh, gold and precious metals, um, and those are uh, you know, great to have because they're more portable. You can kind of take them with you on the road. Um, but uh, they can also be confiscated. And then the third, which was really fascinating to me, is art. Um, also portable, uh, not as fungible. Now, there's some interesting things that are going on uh, in uh, the world of investing. Have you ever heard of, a, of an organization called Masterworks? Where you can actually buy a small portion of a great work of art. So you can actually be like, you know, have a, like a one thousandth of a share in like water lilies by, you know, um, Monet. So you can go on Masterworks and you can actually see these works of art that you can, you know, uh, purchase a small portion. So you can say, I'm, a, I'm an investor in this particular work of art. It's like being a, lor- a, a, a lord in, in Scotland. You buy a piece of, you know, foot of land and you become like a Scottish no- nobleman. <laughs> you know, you get this little, you, gotta, you know, you got to live on a foot, a square foot of land. But you can say, I'm a Scottish lady or lord. But uh, those are the three things. And I thought those were, were intriguing. Um, and each um, of those things, I think there's a story behind why those are things that you can rely on. But, but do you notice that the currency wasn't listed? It wasn't like you have a big vault of cash. Why? Some of the di- dynamics that we've been discussing. Um, this morning I joked a little bit about conf- Confederate currency. currency and... Uh, Richard Giles objected that he would, he would accept you know, Confederate dollars in exchange for goods. <laughs> well, yeah, you're a pretty interesting sort of an anomaly, but uh, you get my drift. There's a sense in which currency is always tied to the prospects of a, of a sovereign power. And that's precisely the thing that you can't, or the price, precisely the thing that's in question in a war or a revolution is, is whether or not that's going to be uh, a, a, you know, a place where you can... Uh, store wealth in the currency. Um, any thoughts on any of that? This is actually, yeah, Mac. Going back to the inflation thing, um, yeah. I've wondered in the past if 
the prohibition for kings of Israel to not amass a lot of wealth for themselves yeah. was less about kind of just creating opulence than it was um, actually uh, societal destabilization of this place. Because we know that King Solomon had so much silver it was like a commodity. And toward the end of his life, he had to use whips to get people to do, do the work to yeah, you know, right. get the output he needed. Yeah, that's or an interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, he kind of uh, falls into the same pattern of behavior that you see in Egypt. Uh, when we think about think about Pharaoh, everybody really kind of was his slave. Pharaoh was the only landowner apart from the priests. They were the only uh, other you know landowning body. Um, so certain things that uh, are instituted in Israel are pretty easy to contrast with what they had witnessed in Egypt. Other thoughts? Yeah, Jihon. The three things you mentioned, the, the strategies that the aristocracy deployed, one of the things that isn't mentioned is being an aristocrat. Like, it seems like an essential part of their survival strategy to be an aristocrat and have that whatever power that that affords them. And I'm not sure if that's those three strategies would be translatable to yeah to America or right some other people who don't have wealth or power. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, um, the the resources that they have to draw on are greater than the resources that we possess. Um, I th- I, th- I think though that there are some things that to learn though from how they approach things. I I've gotten into collecting art uh, in the last few years. Uh, I have about half a dozen uh, artists that I uh, follow, uh, and when their works come up for auction, uh, I, you know, occasionally will bid on them, and mo- usually lose. <laughs> somebody, somebody lost a thing over here, but uh, but it, the, my my thought is it's uh, one of these things that are are good to possess for their for their own sake, uh, but also are a store of value. But fungibility is, a, is the, the problem. And fungibility, when it comes to these three things, uh, precious metals are the only thing that you could say is readily fungible, meaning you can use it in exchange. So back to that, that opening scene in Casablanca, you've got a woman who's got an entire uh, you know, purse full of diamonds. And she's trying to buy... Um, documents that will let her emigrate. And the person that she's speaking to is like, ha, diamonds, I've got them coming out of my ears. <laughs> diamonds, diamonds. And they say, he gives her this rock-bottom price. Uh, and it's like, what's she going to do? You know. So as I, you know, this is something to kind of keep in the back of our minds as we think about this, this problem. Um, so, you know, there are quite... So there are, there are problems that I've, I've been reflecting on with relationship to how to, to navigate difficult times when the government, or at least certain parts of the government, are part of the problem or are criminal. Um, when you go rogue, I think one of the questions you have to ask yourself is when. When do things get so bad that I have to resort to the black market? There's always a black market, right? Uh, in normal societies, when times are good, the only things for sale in the black market are the things that are, really should be illegal, right? 
But there are times when um, things are bad and the state has gone rogue and legal things are illegal. In other words, things that uh, a healthy government, a just government, would permit or allow you to possess. So let's, let's, let's keep it really easy to relate to. Bibles. Bibles are illegal in certain parts of the world. The only way you can get a Bible in some parts of the world is on the black market. Think about it. You can get crack in the black market and a Bible. <laughs> That's the kind of world I'm, I'm thinking we need to kind of think about or be sort of at least begin to consider. You know, how, do we, how do we live in a world like that? Well, one of the things that it does is it puts you into some very interesting uh, sort of environments. That's what you see in Casablanca. <laughs> you suddenly have criminals and really virtuous people all in the same room doing deals with each other. And that's something to think about, you know. Um, then, uh, you know, one of, one of these things that, that also is worth thinking about is opacity. In other words, uh, when it comes to, say, cash, when, you know, you, you sometimes you'll hear somebody say, uh, yeah, the, uh, the thing you want uh, that I've got for sale, I just want cash. I don't want check. I don't want uh, a credit card. I don't do Venmo. Cash. Now, what does that usually mean? Usually means that this is not going to be reported to the IRS. That's what it, that's what it means. You know, this person wants uh, opacity, doesn't want transparency. Now, uh, on one hand, that's kind of uh, a thing that implies wickedness. On the other hand, um, when you're in a, an environment where the bad guys are running the show, to put it just baldly, you want that kind of secrecy. Um, I mentioned this morning that you know we, there's an organization called GAB, uh, which is run by some Christian guys, um, and there's not a bank in America that will work with them. Uh, they have to use uh, Bitcoin to keep afloat. So, and why is that? Well, um, for the reason that, uh, you know, we can say uh, the people who are running the, not just uh, government organizations but also uh, private enterprises have been uh, co-opted by an ideology that's really hostile to Christian convictions. Um, then there's the problem of portability, obviously land and art. Um, and then, as I noted earlier, the problem of fungibility. So I'm finally getting to Bitcoin. <laughs> what is it about Bitcoin that makes it worth considering when you, th you think about your own financial position and your future? I think uh, the things that we have uh, that we can, we can uh, rely on Bitcoin for, Bitcoin for uh, have to do with freedom. Um, now imagine that opening scene in Casablanca with smartphones and Bitcoin exchange. So you're dealing with a situation in which it's not just you and that one party who has the goods that you want, but you're actually uh, using resources that are fungible and uh, are able to be uh, transferred across all sorts of boundaries. So today, 
uh, Bitcoin is being used to fund, and I think I noted this this morning, missionaries in limited access countries. So uh, it's something that can be used for good, in, and it is being used for good in places like that. Yep. Sure. <laughs> Okay, that's great. Yeah, I should, have, I should have talked a little bit about that. So I apologize. So Bitcoin is a, a digital means of, ex, of uh, currency, or a digital form of currency, that is ex, exchanged uh, through what's referred to as blockchain, which means that you can have peer-to-peer, trustworthy, uh, and um, uh, transactions that are recorded in a way that everybody else who's in the Bitcoin world uh, has an ability to note. So in other words, it, when, once a transfer has occurred, it can't happen again. In other words, uh, it's not like, you know, like when you have your computer and you just, you, you just like see an image on the screen and you make a copy of that image and you put it on your computer and therefore you've got, you know, the image in your computer, but it was actually someplace else originally and now you've got two where you, before you only had one. Blockchain prevents that kind of, that kind of inflation uh, with regard to the currency. It's based on code. It's based on code. Well, uh, there is a thing called uh, Bitcoin mining. So essentially, you, you, there is a, a set of constraints in the system that prevent inflation. You can mine... and introduce new Bitcoin into uh, the system, but it's a very labor-intensive and, uh, uh, you know, timely process. But as the Bitcoin uh, grows, or sort of more of it goes into circulation, everybody knows that this is occurring, and there is a point in time where it's no longer happening. So it's fixed. There's There's a fixed amount. It's a fiat currency, yeah. But it's not fiat in the sense that, say, a government currency is. What stands behind, and this is an important difference, what stands behind our currency, the American dollar, is the might of the United States. It's uh, trustworthiness because of its ability to perform uh, or to, uh, to fulfill its promises. So that's, that's why we, we can trust it in our exchange, so there's somebody standing behind her. Uh, when it comes to Bitcoin, uh, trust in the system is what you see on display. So it's because I trust that this system has integrity and is what it says it's, it is that uh, we're able to participate in it. This is also, of course, where Bitcoin might fall apart at some point if, it lose, if we lose our trust. Uh, well, it also can be um, destroyed or maligned or, or, or contaminated by the rogue government we know. Yeah, and, and there are certainly um, efforts to try to legislate, control uh, the Bitcoin community. So Bitcoin is basically something you would buy in no other way but on the internet. Yeah, it's something that can only be acquired uh, through the internet. How do you use it? 
You can use it just like you use any other kind of money. So like when you have your credit card, you can say there's a kind of digital currency that's being employed when you have a, a credit card. So you, when you swipe your card, it actually is, you know, the information is being transmitted via the internet uh, to your bank or to the lender. And um, there's a record of the transaction and um, currency has been transferred from you to the, to the person that you've purchased something from. Um, if it's a credit card, of course, the intermediary would be Visa or MasterCard or whomever who's actually taking the liability on themselves. But then they're transferring it to you in the form of interest rates. That's how they make your money. card at Safeway? What's that? And you spend Bitcoin money at Safeway? Yeah. Yeah, there are ways to do it. So you can actually use Bitcoin. So, for example, Venmo is something that most of us have heard of, I think, at least a good number of people have. I use it all the time. You can buy cryptocurrency on, on Venmo. Uh, and then you, you, Venmo actually has a credit card, and you can actually pay your credit card with uh, cryptocurrency. So in that situation, you're kind of dipping into both worlds. Yep. They also have that on WhatsApp, or on Cash yeah, yeah, it's it's all over the place now, it, it, and this is, so it's becoming more and more uh, sort of ubiquitous. You can just get it every, everywhere. So you know, it's sort of like kind of my 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 observation is this: uh, it used to be back in the day before um, Apple computer and Windows. You know, the real tech heads would just take a lot of pride in the the opacity of code. It's like, yeah, you folks don't know DOS. You're nothing. Right, and so they—they they just like they were very resistant to the democratization of personal computers, and very resentful. They hated Windows. They hated Apple for making computers usable by regular people. <laughs> and you got a kind of same kind of phenomenon with Bitcoin right now. You got the early adopters who were really into the tech side of it, who were like you know have their digital wallets and all of the stuff that they use. And, you know, they hear about stuff like Venmo, like, oh, man, all the riffraff are getting in now. Because it's now it's a lot easier <laughs> for regular folks like you and me to get into the crypto world. The most yeah. commonly ways of obtaining Bitcoin, though, your identity is tied to it. Yeah. And it's just like using your credit card or writing a check. It's not anonymous. Yeah, and that's another important part of it. It's, uh, so if you're looking for something that's opaque, uh, then Bitcoin cryptocurrency is not uh, probably the thing you want it to employ. But if you're looking for something that's quick and fungible and recognized just about everywhere in the world, you can be in Africa, China, wherever, uh, and you're just trying to get out of town quick, <laughs> then Bitcoin can be really helpful. So I think that's where I would put it. I would say that for, in my own approach to this matter, uh, I, I'm not an advocate for like a, a radical transition to Bitcoin uh, in every part of our lives or anything like that. I think uh, that would be foolish. Um, it's something that is still early in its development. But I, I do think uh, it would be, it's worthwhile to have Bitcoin uh, as one of the things that you can fall back on and use in difficult times. Um, so if I were so giving advice to aristocrats, I'd say land, right, gold, art, and Bitcoin. 
is <laughs> you may need to get out of town quick, and Bitcoin would be helpful for that. Uh, so I think that that's the, that's the thing, you know, so long as you, you recognize that there are these caveats. First, the technology has to be working in order for it to be useful. Uh, that there is a kind of transparency that was just noted. There's a sense in which if somebody really wanted to track you down because of a particular transaction, it's possible. Not easy, but possible. Uh, and that the system is based on trust. Um, and if that trust uh, were to be lost, the value of your Bitcoin goes with it. Just like Confederate currency. <laughs> you know, once that municipality or once that sovereign state is no more, the currency is worthless. If the Bitcoin system is compromised uh, and people just don't trust it anymore, you're not going to be able to use your Bitcoin uh, just like you can't use Confederate dollars. So in terms of how, how I'd like to wrap this up, so I'll wrap this up quickly. Uh, I think the thing that uh, I would like to, to suggest is that our, our approach should be prudent. And as we think about that, uh, we need to exercise, what prudence is, is just an exercise of practical wisdom. And I think Bitcoin fits into a larger strategy. So when it comes to our priorities, where and how we invest ourselves in things. First, we need to invest ourselves in the entity that is truly valuable, the only intrinsically valuable entity, God. We invest ourselves, trust him, and invest ourselves in him, first of all. Then there are analogs. I think high-trust personal networks are tremendously important. What I mean by that is in, rough, in difficult times, where do you turn first? To the people you're closest to, the people that you trust, the people that you could rely on uh, who have a vested interest in your welfare and you have a vested interest in theirs. But there's a caveat here. People can let each other down. It happens all the time. Judas cashed Christ in for the gold. And I think one of the things that was a real shock and has led to kind of the great sort that we see in our, not only in our country, but in our churches. So let me put it this way. Every, I, I travel the country. I speak in a lot of churches. Every church that resisted the mandates is growing like crazy across the country. Every, the churches that were compliant, the more compliant they were, the worse off they are. It's just everywhere. Churches that defied the mandates are packed. It has to do with the big sort. Who could I trust? Who will turn me in? That's the question that people are mulling over. Who can I trust? So uh, high trust personal networks, you should invest yourself in that. And that's, by the way, what the story of the unjust steward is all about. <laughs> right? Um, I think that you should invest in real property, you know, things like, you know, I noted earlier, real estate, precious metals, art. But I would also uh, say that Bitcoin can be part of that, that having um, access to it is, I think, a wise and prudent thing to do. You might find yourself in need of some Bitcoin at some point, precisely because of its fungibility, its universality, its ability to transcend boundaries or borders and so forth. Um, 
And with that in mind, I'd say thank God for Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. How would you? Um, um, how would you rate its stability as compared to some of the other essentials that you've listed, like gold or land? Or- oh well, yeah. I mean, gold is going to retain its value, but the problem is retaining the gold. So that's the big thing. I noted earlier that it, we have laws uh, that uh, give the government the right to confiscate your gold. Oh, sure, and you're going to find that with demand. So it, it comes down to demand. Um, and, you know, when we talk about the cost of money, uh, interest rates kind of reflect demand, but they also reflect uh, some other things that are going on in the economy. Um, when it comes to any of these things, it, you know, it's a good, you know, when you buy is, is important. You know, so we, we had a significant um, dip in the Bitcoin world. I don't know if you noticed that. There were some scandals. Um, so pr- prices plummeted. Um, they're almost all back. That's the untold, you know, you don't see, hear that. But, and the reason is, uh, for the, you know, getting c- kind of what I've been talking about before, um, we, we live in a world where there's a lot of uncertainty and people are trying to hedge their bets. So like even when it comes to precious metals, generally speaking, financial advisors they don't tell you to go all in on gold and own nothing else. Usually they say, no, 5%, you know, is where you want to be um, because it's your hedge against inflation, that kind of thing. It's not necessarily the, the best or the only place to store your wealth. I think the same thing is true with Bitcoin. I, don't, I haven't done any work uh, in terms of trying to figure out what percentage would be a good percentage. Um, I don't own that much. I'm, I've decided that I'm going to just dollar cost average for the rest of my life. Just buy a little bit every month. Build up my portfolio. Who knows what may happen. Other thoughts or questions? So don't leave tonight saying, Pastor Wiley says, go all in on Bitcoin. (laughs) God's going to bless you if you do. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, Michael. um, in a world where there are competitors to Bitcoin yeah. as well, being based on trust isn't the only factor whether or not it would be. You mentioned ease of use, right? So if, if something else were as equally trustworthy, but 10 times easier to use, yeah. didn't have any other differences in pros and cons, you have that impacting the potential value. Right. Yeah, and I don't know what, say, the government's uh, foray into this. You know, there's been discussion about the government issuing its own form of digital currency. I don't know what that would do to it. Uh, so I own uh, f- actually four different kinds of cryptocurrency. And some of the um, people who are, um, provide you know, the, the ability to, to purchase uh, Bitcoin provide you with more than one option. But Bitcoin is kind of like the... 800-pound gorilla on the block. Yeah, Jiho. Would you be comfortable recommending the church holds Bitcoin rather than dollars? That's a good question. I, you know, at this point, no, I wouldn't be. I, I think when we're dealing with other people's money, money that's been given to the Lord, we need to take a very conservative approach. But when things get really weird, what is the conservative approach? <laughs> and that's a great question. You know, when you got like a super inflationary environment like Argentina 
is the, is the most prudent, safest approach. Just put it in the bank. That's a tough call. You know, and when do you make that call? A lot of wisdom needs to be. And then there's no such thing as risk-free life. You know, we're going to make, you know, every, everything. Trusting in dollars is a risk. Yeah, I think a little bit on inflation in our country. Well, I bought a, um, what do you call it for the ice? For the what? The ice that I bought yesterday, a, a pack of ice? Or? Yeah. A case. a case. A case of ice. And uh, just a couple months ago, the case of ice was $8. It's like six packs of ice. Yesterday it was $14. So Time to ice. I think I, I should invest in water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and as we think about these things, as I noted, there are two ways inflation can occur. One is limited supply and increasing demand, but then... And we can and we can live with that, but the the thing that's hard to live with is just simply the increase in the money supply, which brings its value down. Which is a form of taxation. Not even in the '80s. Like you, you I like sandwiches. You know, a deli meat now is is, was five dollars a pound. Now it's twelve. And think about who are the people who are paying a greater percentage in a way that hurts. You know, their monthly. Yes, people who have stationary income or fixed income, but also poor people. Poor, the lower you are on the economic ladder, the more this affects you. So, you know, people who've got more money than they know what to do with, it's like, what, what's the price of milk? I don't know. Remember that line. I don't know, maybe that's a, an election cycle that's a little too far back. George W. Bush. <laughs> yeah. um, just a reminder that, you know, we live in a day of... Um, Federal Reserve banks, yeah. fractional currency, Keynesian economics that leads to all sorts of problems. But even before they had that, you did have financial disasters oh, yeah. that impacted people greatly. Yeah. So God is always going to use our love of money yeah. Yeah. to remind us that this is not your. This is not going to be your. Um, tower of power yeah. here, right? It's, it yeah. is not. And so just a reminder that even though we live, yes, in days where there's greedy men who are manipulating things, creating this these, you know, instability, this has gone on yeah, for a long time. Um, yeah. pretty much forever. Yeah, during the gold standard it was happening. Before fractional banking it was happening. <laughs> things, things like that kind of, you're right, I think, God reminds us of uh, our need for him in times of financial crisis. Right. Yeah, this last one, we should wrap it up. Yeah, sure. I think what I got the most out of the last two lectures this morning is the idea of value, intrinsic and extrinsic, and what is valuable, and that money isn't valuable as much as you can say things like people and love and, you know, children and, yeah. and um, you know, God really is the most valuable. So that's what I'm thinking of. Well, great. That, that's what I was hoping for. I was hoping that people would see that uh, when we talk about money, we're talking about extrinsic value, something that's good insofar as it helps us to, do, to acquire what's intrinsically valuable. Anyway, well, why don't we pray and we'll, we can continue talking. 
Father, thank you for uh, this time this evening as we've kind of uh, stumbled through a number of very difficult and complicated matters. Um, we pray, Lord, for wisdom. It's unavoidable that uh, we're going to make economic uh, you know, decisions that uh, have implications, economic implications for us. Um, we, make, uh, we assess the value of things every day. Uh, we exchange uh, uh, something of value for other things of value. Uh, in every interaction that we uh, in, enter into. Make us prudent and wise. Help us make uh, courageous and um, uh, at the same time uh, informed choices and take the right kinds of risks. Uh, and help us to do all of this to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.